and we are back for another episode. This is episode 16, and we are very excited because we've got some jet setters here. Steffi's been all over the place on the women's side, out to California, and now our special guest, Mr. Matt Norlander from CBS Sports, senior writer and college basketball analyst. He was just down here in Greenville, South Carolina with the men's basketball tournament. Now he's going to be out to California following the Duke program and Coach K and his last hoorah in this last dance, so to speak, for Coach K. So, Matt, we're very excited that you're joining us here on the podcast. And first and foremost, your opportunity of visiting my hometown right now, Greenville, South Carolina. How was your experience outside of the Wi-Fi issues at the Bon Secours Wellness Arena? <laughs> uh, Richmond and Stephanie, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, yeah, the Wi-Fi was randomly uh, not reliable, both in my hotel room where I tried to do a podcast. That was an utter disaster <laughs> when I tried to podcast late Thursday night, was it? Yeah, that was a complete disaster. And then uh, the arena one was not great Friday, but credit to... Uh, everyone at the arena, uh, people with the NCAA, they actually did get that stuff fixed up, and it was it was cruising there on Sunday, which is good. I didn't realize that like one tweet would send. I had people coming up to me on press row being like, "Are you Matt? Are you good?" I'm like, "Wow, um, you think I do need." Well, I mean, you do, but like at the same time, like we are trying to do a job, and I need working internet connection there. So they got it done. Um, I liked the arena. It was. Bigger than I was expecting in my mind, by the way. Now, there are certain venue capacity regulations you have to have in order to even host these tournament games. But in my mind, going down there, I just I remember watching the 17 uh, round there when you know South Carolina beat Duke. And on TV, I remember it seeming to be smaller than it actually looked in person. That's a, that's a, that's a legit arena. Yeah, we, we have the SEC Women's Tournament there usually every year. And uh, it, it gets packed in there, so I'm glad I'm, I'm glad they fixed the Wi-Fi, Matt. Bless your heart. They did. Jeez. They did, Steffi. And yeah, the uh, the town itself was awesome. I, in fact, I wish I had time to explore more. You know, I walked up and down that main thoroughfare about f- once a day. Um, I didn't get to walk like I wanted to go to. Uh, Biscuit Head, I believe it is, but it's like a, a legit like 20, 25 minute walk. I, I never had I never had at least like an hour and a half to go walk, eat, walk back. I, never, I just didn't have that, that much time. But I uh, I explored some other restaurants, some good stuff. I Tupelo Honey was the was the spot there. I really liked uh, my breakfast. I got a Tupelo Honey and yeah, Greenville. It's kind of hard to believe that there's still something of like a hidden gem, but that's like a hidden gem. It's almost it's probably what Charleston was 25, 30 years ago, probably. But it is definitely a hidden gem and in a great, great, great city kind of, you know, tucked there in the northwest nook of South Carolina. That's right. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And we're excited that we're going to be able to host uh, March Madness again in 2023 and then again in 2026. And hopefully they'll have everything worked out. So it'll be even more smooth from that perspective. But before we jump into the brackets, Matt, I've got to ask, because I've been wanting to ask this. Are you a musician wanting to be a (laughs) college basketball guy or are you a college basketball guy wanting to be a musician? Because I saw you in the arena as Guns N' Roses playing, and I see you doing the air uh, guitar. Just, you know, what, what do you <laughs> so, want from me? Um, I believe, so we are doing this face-to-face, but this podcast will be audio only, right? Yes, that's right. So, yeah, so actually you you can see, like, I've got music posters behind me. I've got, I've got the drum set behind me. i got my guitars up there. So uh, I am a... Well, geez, I'm a wannabe musician who uh, loves uh, loves his job. So, yeah, no, I do play the occasional gig during the offseason and all that stuff. I was in a band in college and all that good stuff. So, yeah, no, there, there's there's the heavy music side of it, without a doubt. I've There have been pep bands who have, like, let me sit in and play guitar and, and 
drums and all that good stuff. So it's wow. uh, it's a fun it's a fun little thing on the side. Although this is the time of year, this is the only space, basically the month of March, uh, where I don't pick up my guitar. Actually, my calluses are starting to soften up on my fingers because otherwise, during the off season, like I'll be I'll play I'll play just about every day, even if it's seven minutes or an hour and a half. Like I'll play guitar or drums. One of the two guitars, my actual intro drums, I like to do for fun. I can play a little bit, but I'm not like. I'm not like a drummer. Uh, I am a guitar player, but yeah, no, it's uh, I, I'm I'm good with my my occupation. I would I, I tell you what, uh, the glory. I actually happen to know. That I'm not trying. I'm not going to even name drop. But I actually happen to know people that who make no uh, name drop. Like, I know that I you know I know I just happen to know like drummers who like literally have they play on for touring acts and they they make their money living in Nashville, playing. Uh, music for a living and I know the guys in Guster and they get to be in a band and play for a living and it's it's awesome but uh, there's a lot of also instability and there's never any guarantee that you can do what you want to do and have it be you know steady for a lifetime in music yeah. and sports writing hopefully that's much more the case so I'm, I'm happy with the gig I have yes well you get to live in both worlds so to speak so why not take it take advantage of that yes all right so jumping into this men's bracket Matt just looking at uh, we're only one region did we have chalk, and that's there in the West with Gonzaga and Arkansas matching up and then Texas Tech and Duke matching up uh, as well. So is that more surprising that we only had one region with chalk or more surprising that we have four double-digit seeds that have made the Sweet 16? Oh, I'd say it's more surprising that we have one region with chalk uh, because – Every single year, you know, every year for CBSSports.com, the Tuesday after Selection Sunday, we run a, a stats, facts, nuggets posted. I always, I, I update the stats. I throw in a few things, but think one item in that every year is you need to take double-digit seeds to make the Sweet 16 because it always happens. I think since the field expanded in 85, there's only been two years where it's been nothing but single-digit seeds. At least one and often two or three. So we have it again. St. Peter's, double-digit seed. Miami's a 10. It's going. Iowa State is an 11. It's going. Michigan is an 11. It's going. So that's not too surprising. I do, we'd obviously anticipate chaos. And it. I would even say the fact that we have any region that was chalk, one, two, three, four, is also pretty surprising. I, you know, I'm glad we got it. I'm thrilled to be going to San Francisco for the first time. And I'm going to the spot that has the top four teams in a given bracket. That's going to be pretty cool. Although, to be honest, like Arkansas, UConn was the five. It didn't get out against New Mexico State. But if it was UConn, Gonzaga, that would basically feel like chalk as well. Um, some really great potential out there. But yeah, we've had a lot of noise. And that's really good. See, the thing I love about this tournament is that you get everything. And by that, I mean, you have have three of the four ones still around you have these huge underdog cinderella stories saint peter's is an unbelievable thing it's a national story it's not a national sports story it is a national news story granted it's way down the list because hello unfortunately every single day we are getting upgrade uh, updates out of ukraine halfway across the world but as it pertains to stuff domestically and much more lighter yeah saint peter's is a is a wonderful thing and a great thing to to really see, to cheer for. They're going to get to play in Philadelphia. But you have the hodgepodge of groupings. You know, Iowa State-Miami is not a game in the Sweet 16 that almost anyone would have had. Maybe no one had it. You know, if you went to, if you are the, if there's someone out there that got their undergrad degree at Iowa State and then was like, I need to go to South Florida to get my master's, maybe that person has that Sweet 16, right? Like there was no <laughs> reason to have that matchup, period. If you did it, it's pure blind luck if that happened. But you get all this kind of mix. Providence is in the Sweet 16 for the first time under Ed Cooley and for the first time in decades, 
just really, really awesome. Coming off of what was an amazing first weekend there. Incredible matchups. Every single one seed had to earn it to get to this point. I don't think there's ever been a second round where all four one seeds were involved in games that were that good. Uh, Gonzaga barely beats Memphis. Arizona barely beats TCU. Kansas was in a really tight one against Creighton. It won by seven, but it was a, a riveting game for most of it. And then obviously Baylor Carolina was uh, an epic and an epic officiating disaster as far as I'm concerned. But Carolina gets on past 93-86 to move along there. So yeah, it's uh, I just love how many different kind of scenarios and matchups are born out of this first weekend. And there's a little bit of something for everyone as we get set for the suit 16. So Matt, going into the NCAA tournament and when the bracket came out, did you have a region that you thought would be the toughest? And then how did it kind of shake out once the first two rounds got played? Yeah. So I thought the West was the toughest. Now the irony of that Steffi is that it, it, it kind of was validated and yet also invalidated. I thought the West was the toughest for Gonzaga of all the one seeds. And I thought the West was the toughest for Duke of all the two seeds. But because the, the teams at the top of that are also really, really good, like Texas Tech is the best defensive team in the country. Duke has more talent than anyone. Duke's not the best team, but Duke has more talent. If you look at te- guys that are destined to go in the lottery to be drafted, have an NBA ceiling, Duke has more talent than anyone. Gonzaga is the best team. It's, it rates as the best offense there. Arkansas at times has played like a top 10 team this season, and UConn was, was certainly strong. And then I thought the double-digit seeds in the West were also very, very strong for the, for the most part. The likes of Davidson, Vermont was a trendy pick. New Mexico State is always good and finally got an NCAA tournament win this season. Even Boise State as an eight seed was the Mountain West champion. So I thought the, the West had the, the deepest and strongest, sturdiest group. So that might make you think, okay, then that's the one that might be most likely to not have chalk advance. Well, it kind of speaks to the strength of, uh, of the teams on the top line there. And then the weakest one that I've maintained the entire time, I thought Kansas had the easiest road to get to New Orleans out of the Midwest. That's kind of playing out so far, although it is the Iowa was the trendy pick as the five to make the Sweet 16 and then beat Kansas. That obviously isn't going to happen. They fell to the Spiders of Richmond in the first round. But if you really look at that, not that Kansas is going. We know that we can't assume anything, but, you know, Iowa State or Miami and a potential lead elite matchup if it can get past Providence would certainly set up and so I'm not surprised that the Midwest had some upsets because I thought that was the weakest region overall Uh, when Kansas gets ready to play Providence by the way the Friars still rank 33rd at Ken Palm Kansas is fifth it's obviously a a fairly large disparity overall it could be a pretty decent game don't get me wrong I think there's potential for that but Ken Palm actually projects that to be uh, a seven point win for Kansas Matt I gotta follow up because I spent a lot of my time during um, regular season covering the SEC. Okay. We got to talk about Kentucky, Auburn, Tennessee. What the hell happened? <laughs> okay. Those, well, first of all, yes, the league only has one team still standing, and it's those Razorbacks. Arkansas, yeah. Yeah. Um, but to those three teams specifically, uh, Kentucky, there's no excuse for it. Like, we can cheer and be amazed at the St. Peter story, by, but at the same time, also asking Kentucky, what the, what, what the hell? Like, you can't have this. And particularly because this wasn't a young Kentucky team. You know, it was a group that Calipari built differently than any other team he had ever had. Xavier Wheeler, Oscar Shibway, uh, Davion Mintz, Kellen Grady, Jacob Toppin. They're all transfers. Oscar Shibway was the best player in the country this season. And they were not able to beat a St. Peter's team that showed up that played uh, tremendously well. Uh, and even Shibway, by the way, he had 30 and 16. Like he again was reliable and it wasn't, it wasn't enough there. Uh, if you're a Kentucky fan, I know there's been 
some introspection going on. Uh, I know it's actually started to enter into the equation of like, not that you're going to get rid of John Calipari, but it's like, okay, how much longer like do we have to wait to have a season where everything gets put together? Because they win the title in 2012. They go 38-0 before losing in 2015. Uh, and since then, since 2015, when they made the Final Four, they have not gotten back to a Final Four. Now, there was no 2020 tournament. Kentucky was a good team. It wasn't a great team that season. Um, but yeah, they're starting to feel some urgency there. Auburn, I don't have an answer for you. Complete no-show. The final game of Jabari Smith's career, he goes 3-16 of from the field. It's stunning. It is a stunning no-show. They finished 6-5 down the stretch there. It's not, it's not stunning that Auburn didn't make the Sweet 16. I'm just telling you, having been in the building... And I only saw the second half of that game because the first half I was worried about writing off Duke not having a season end and Coach K's career come to a close. But that was, uh, that was yeah, it was rough. Really, really rough for Bruce Pearl's team. There's no excuse for that. And then Tennessee, Rick Barnes is 25 and 25 all time in the NCAA tournament. I think that's a good stat. He's made the tournament 25 times. But if you figure if you make it 25 times, you should be above 500 overall. That's just not the case there. There have been letdowns over the years with Tennessee uh, under Barnes and Tennessee even before Barnes got there. Um, I, the biggest takeaway that I have to insist on here though is that it is a single elimination tournament with uh the uh, you know the propensity to give you random results don't allow this tournament to absolutely dictate what four months worth of data showed you so yes it is a disappointment it doesn't mean the sec was overrated this is going to happen when you have an event that is built to be a chaos generator. And that's what the tournament is there for the SEC. Just like the Big Ten in many ways, it just wound up on the wrong end of things. Most definitely. This is what we love, though, about these three weeks, that we do have this type of chaos. But then now also looking in that East bracket where Kentucky falls obviously very short, and I had Kentucky winning the whole thing, and that was a disaster oh, <laughs> by <laughs> thinking that John Calipari would be able to have that that team to be able to advance all the way to the final and win. But looking at some of the other blue bloods, now we've got the UNC UCLA matchup, which it's crazy that they've only played two other times in the NCAA tournament. And yeah. also this is a game that they were supposed to play back in December in Vegas mm -hmm. in that multi team event out there. So when you look at this matchup, Matt, would it be more impressive that Mick Cronin gets UCLA to back to back Elite Eights, or more impressive that Hubert Davis gets this North Carolina team to his first Elite Eight? Great question, because last year, remember, like, let's not look back at UCLA thinking that making the Final Four uh, was a great thing, but not unexpected. No, it was unexpected. UCLA barely got into the tournament and went to the Final Four from the first four. To do that and then make an Elite Eight in back-to-back -back years is pretty... Uh, it would be pretty substantial. That's why it's my answer. Now, Davis getting to Carolina to the Elite Eight in his first season is humongous, but you're, that's only one season, and I'd have to pick UCLA doing it twice if it can get to the Elite Eight. You're not, you know, we're not even necessarily saying back-to-back -back Final Fours. That alone would be huge as well. Um, but yeah, UCLA would be my pick. UCLA got a close shave against Akron. Right, and like some of these games, these results, we almost forget they've happened just a couple of days ago. But Akron was in it. And UCLA was able to hold on, and then UCLA came out two days later and just 
you know, it erased St. Mary's from the bracket, which was surprising because St. Mary's had no problem with a tired Indiana team. It won, you know, by almost 30 points there. And then it was, uh, it was incapable of keeping up with UCLA. So for UCLA to do that, particularly because now it doesn't have Jaime Jaquez fully healthy, we'll see how available he is once it gets time to play this game in Philly on Friday. It's going to be the late tip in Philly about 9.40, 9.45 at night on CBS. We'll wait and see. But it's been a huge one for Carolina, a great first year for Hubert Davis, and he is quieted just about all of his critics um however misguided some of those were i understand why carolina had some issues it lost big to good teams it was only beating bad teams to start but things have a way of evening out and they have so far with davis and unc's done a good job but ucla would be the more impressive thing to me richmond i would tend to agree with that just the again back to back that's very impressive all right we know uh, matt that you've got to jump out of here so last question though some coaching hires what's been your favorite off-season hire so far Ooh, favorite off-season hire so far. Um, I'm trying to give you the one that I think has the best chance of being um, the safest fit. So a, a quick recap at the power conference level as we record this. We'll just stick with power conference right now. Um, and I'm not going to include, well, no, I'll include. Like John Shire's going to take over at Duke. That's interesting. I think he's got a good chance of succeeding, but I don't know necessarily um, if he'll wind up being the best. You've got Todd Golden going to Florida. You have Mike White leaving Florida and going to Georgia. You have Jerome Tang going to Kansas State. You have Kenny Payne going to Louisville. You have Matt McMahon going to LSU. You have Kevin Willard going to Maryland. Chris Jans going to Mississippi State. Dennis Gates going to Missouri. And you have Lamont Paris going to um, South Carolina with Sean Miller going to Xavier. Those are the power conference ones. The only one that's not filled right now is Seton Hall which is losing Willard, and everyone believes that Shaheen Holloway, once St. Peter's run is done, will wind up taking the Seton Hall job. That hopefully will be all of the power conference jobs that fill. The one that I think is the best fit is Chris Jans to Mississippi State. I think he has the best chance of lasting there, coaching for the remainder of his career with Mississippi State, and simply being uh, a good fit. That means at Mississippi State, maybe he gets him into the tournament once every three years. Don't necessarily believe that you know he's going to have the Bulldogs competing for Final Fours or whatever, but that's the toughest job in the conference there, and it's a really good fit. Um, the one that I think has the best combination of upside Ooh, boy, is that intriguing. Todd Golden is young. He's really smart. And if he hits, he's going to hit it out of the park. Um, some don't know if it's a great fit at Florida because he's not from the region. He's going, you know, making a huge jump from San Francisco to Florida into the SEC. Maybe he's benefited a little bit by the fact that there have been six jobs that have changed in the SEC this season. So someone's going to wind up winning that race within the conference overall. Maybe it can be Golden. I don't know. Jerome Tang out of Baylor was the best regarded as the best sitting assistant in a, in a power conference. He finally gets that job. He knows the league. Well, there's potential there. I have to bring up the fact that Kenny Payne uh, is a player at Louisville. His, him taking that job could lead to Louisville landing the number one point guard prospect in next year's class. DJ Wagner. It could alter the trajectory of Louisville's program there. So there is now Kenny Payne has not been a head coach. So that's the wild card factor. I ultimately land though. To answer your question, I have to land on Sean Miller because he's the only one that's been hired here that with head coaching experience who has big picture, significant NCAA tournament experience and elongated uh, success as a head coach. He is going to serve a suspension, I believe, later this year into next season. I don't think that the suspension dating to his time in Arizona is going to be lengthy. I will blindly put it at six games. Xavier would be more than happy if he's got to sit for six. You deal with him in the long term. But Miller has a better NCAA tournament track record than Mike White, who was a good coach at Florida, 
but they wanted him to be Billy Donovan. He wasn't, so it goes. He gets to start anew at Georgia, which has almost no history in men's college basketball. Uh, Sean Miller has much more success than Kevin Willard did at Seton Hall, even though Willard did a good job at Seton Hall getting that program back into national relevance. But it's got to be the, the fit works for Miller. He passed on South Carolina. Uh, I could see a situation where this potentially is the last job he has. I will not claim it's going to be the last. You never know. He's in his early 50s. Maybe he goes there for five years. It just doesn't work. He gets out. But maybe he goes there. He's in the Big East. The, when he coached at Xavier, it was A-10. It wasn't Big East. Different deal altogether. He loves it. He goes for 15 years. Xavier goes on another big run of success. And this is where he finishes it out. And it winds up being the best possible place for him. The best fit of any coach at a power conference even though Miller will face some punishment and there will be a little, there's been a little bit of blowback over this. I do think that winds up being the best one just because right now the track records say that it's the best overall. Well, I I think there's a lot to be had in terms of, we're going to hold you to those predictions though, that, you know, right. That Sean Miller is going to stay there for the rest of his career. (laughs) And, but we can't thank you enough, Matt, for jumping on. I know, we don't want to have a situation where your wife is mad at you. So make sure that yeah, you keep yeah, her happy and get ready for your <laughs> flight out to San Francisco. You've got a lot going on, my friend. And we thank you for jumping on the podcast with us. Richmond and Steffi, I appreciate you both. Uh, sorry, yeah, it was relatively quick, but uh, I fly out tomorrow. I appreciate you having me and enjoy the rest of the tournament. Well, Steffi, there's a guy that knows some college basketball, lives and breathes it, and obviously he's a musician at heart as well. So, I mean, you've got the best of both worlds that you know, he wants to be a musician, but also a college basketball guy. And I value a lot of his insight because he's been doing it for a long time. He also co-hosts the Eye on College Basketball podcast with Gary Parrish. He's been with CBS Sports for uh, almost 10 years uh, or I think actually since 2010. So he's been doing it for quite a while. Again, he knows college basketball backwards and forwards. So just getting his insight. But what's crazy, though, it doesn't matter. You can know college basketball left and right. But when we start looking at these brackets, you can't predict it, Steffi. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no way. Matt and Gary Parrish, I mean, they do Gary Parrish. I mean, there's such reliable resources when it comes to news, information, analysis, on college basketball. So I was really pleased that he came on to our new and up and coming show and gave us a little bit of love. But I have realized, I have realized when it comes to the brackets, the less you know, the better you do. People who don't know (laughs) shit about this come in here and they, they are just schooling everyone on brackets. If you watch the game, your bracket sucks like mine. So, um, Basically, don't watch and then watch. You'll probably have a chance. Where I, look, I'm still adjusting the East Coast time. I, spent, I know. I spent a week um, in Palo Alto, spending a shitload of money on just basic things. So, um, outside, seven dollar gas, which I didn't. Good I gosh! Didn't, I didn't pay for any gas. Either. I let the <laughs> I let Hertz fill it up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, it was beautiful. I was blown away. You know, I got to spend at least a day in San Francisco and I've never been even Palo Alto. I've never been out there. And it's just, it's really, it's really pretty. Um, it's really beautiful. Uh, we had good weather. I went sailing one day, um, earlier in the morning in Oakland. Yeah. Tiffany Green, my play by play. She had a, I sailed. I was the sailor. I steered the boat 
and captain uh, no captain there that's right okay. um so we did uh we had some days to do some things but uh everything is just double what we pay here on the east coast and i think that like it's just a different state <laughs> like breakfast yeah it's almost like a different could, country it is every morning i went to breakfast somewhere or whatever just and it was always 31 bucks good gosh and i remember breakfast used to be like that eight to ten and then you know lunch is kind of ten dollars so like everything is just double what we pay and it really amazes me how people make it out there um i was in so where tara vanderveer lives is a I think it's Atherin County or something like that. It's the wealthiest zip code in the entire country. So it's just a different level of wealth out there. It's very understated. LA, New York, Miami, everything's all in your face out there. You have no idea. Like I was walking, we were driving to the restaurant um, on one of the nights and I looked over to my left and it was Steve Kerr and his wife walking to his house. Just, I was Hello, just Coach looking Kerr. at it. I was like, that looks like Steve Kerr. That's Steve Kerr. Pull over. I want to say, hey, you know, but, you know, that was the day after Steph got hurt and he went ballistic um, at the guy who I forget who tumbled over on Steph. It was a basketball play, by the way. Like Steve Kerr did I think that so too. his whole life. I'm sorry. Steve, yeah. come on. Um, it was a basketball play. You want those guys hustling. You're calling for your guys to hustle and die for balls like that. You don't bend over. That's how you get hurt is bending over for the ball. Um, but anyway, Steph should be good for, uh, the playoffs, which is good news. But yes, ran into Steve Kerr. I didn't say anything, you know, he looked like a lovely stroll with his wife, but we had Riley Curry and Ryan Curry at our game. Um, Steph Curry's daughters, they were at the, they were in the house, uh, which was cool. Now, see, I wonder if Steve Kerr was walking down and I wonder if he's on a podcast right now saying, damn. You know, I was walking down and I saw Steffi Sorensen. Rich, stop. <laughs> Do not gas me up like that because. Come on, first now. Of all, I, first of all, I stayed in the car. I didn't come out of the car, but I did want to maybe <laughs> slow down. I wasn't driving, but just enjoying a nice brisk walk. Nothing fancy. Um, those homes in there were nice. But uh, yeah, it was really, it was really, I, I had a great time. I thought it was going to be a different experience. And uh no complaints. I mean, other than uh, one night parking by the airport was $40. Other than that. Other than that, yeah. And <laughs> your experience with In-N-Out Burger. I saw you post In-N-Out Burger picture. Talk to me. Just had a meeting with my production crew for this week. I will be in Greensboro. And everyone's talking about meals. And I said, because they give me shit for being healthy, which I sometimes... You know, Rich, you and I know that we've I've got some secrets. A little Taco Bell. Yes, that's uh, right. A little In and Out. They were excited that I went to In and Out, but that place sucks. I'm sorry. Like <laughs> I waited 30 minutes in line. Like I'm getting off the interstate and it's and there's just a dead stop. And I was like, what is this traffic? I realized it's the line for In and Out. And I think it In and Out is like a thing. It is. It's a thing. And so people just I don't have to get it or have to go there or, or whatever, but the food was a 5.1 out of 10. It's overrated. Yeah, I would say it's five overrated. guys all day. Five guys all day. Yeah, I am not a big fan, but it is the the trendy thing to do if you're out in California or out west to go to In-N-Out Burger. That That's the spot to be. And I just have felt that it's always been overrated, to be honest with you. Yeah, well... I, it was not good. And it was just, I even got a double burger 
and I'm not even about that life, but I was hungry. Um, hey, let's let's jump into <laughs> let's start with the women's bracket, Rich. Lego. Um, and we'll close with the men's. Okay. Um, so I was out in Stanford for the first two rounds. Stanford is really good. Shit, they're tough to guard. Um, one seeds all advance. Not necessarily surprised about that, Rich. Uh, the two seeds uh, being toppled. South Dakota and where am I missing? Uh, Iowa. Probably. So Baylor loses in Waco and Iowa. What a game against Creighton. Everyone pinned South Carolina, Iowa in the Elite Eight. That's my bracket. Yes. And Creighton, I mean, uh, Lauren Jansen, who hit the three, played at Iowa. Transferred to Creighton. You're in Iowa. Full crowd. That crowd was amazing. And she buries the three to win them the game. Uh, I'm excited to see them in person um, and talk about their play and how they got there. But, you know, overall, I think um, some good upsets, some really good upsets. South Dakota beating Baylor. I mean, you're talking South Dakota. First of all, Ole Miss. You talked about South Dakota. I told you, like, look. I know. Every, I, this know. Is, I should have said this during my Stanford game when we were talking about upsets. Is the, everyone goes into these mid-majors versus power five, Rich, and it's like, oh, how is this mid-major going to slow down, like insert Oscar Sheway or, you know, uh, 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 just Jabari Smith. I mean, just a big-time player, right? But no one ever says, well, how, how is that power five going to guard the mid-major team? Because they typically don't see the same style of play. And so we saw that where – Ole Miss, who plays in the SEC, has a potential number one draft pick in Shakira Austin. South Dakota beats them because Ole Miss couldn't guard them. Baylor, Baylor, again, Melissa Smith could be the number one draft pick. South Dakota, they cannot score on South Dakota because Baylor can't guard them. So I think the question never gets asked is, how are they, how is a power five going to actually defend the mid-major team? And that's why I think a lot of these upsets happen is, they're not used to seeing the style of play. It's just different. And I wondered, watching that Tennessee-Belmont game, if you saw Belmont's guards, I mean, they were getting open looks all the time. Now, they finished, I think, 8 of 30 from beyond the arc, and it could have been worse. They could Tennessee could have easily lost that game because yeah. they couldn't guard Belmont out on the perimeter. And then when they did try to extend that defensive pressure out on the perimeter – their guards were just too good to get by and, and create some easy open looks there. And so I, I think you're right that a lot of these teams, you know, they might have the size advantage, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be able to guard, especially out on the perimeter. Yeah. Uh, to close the night out, I mean, that UConn game against UCF, uh, Coach Abe, you know, there's a camera on her a lot because she's a little different. But she can coach like no other. I mean, her te- she was at Albany. Albany always got into the NCAA tournament. Comes to UCF. They were irrelevant. Now, I mean, she they almost upset UConn. Um, that was a great game. Yes, and you had talked about UCF, and it's the only reason why I picked UCF to beat your Florida Gators is because you said they that were, yeah. they were going to do it. And sure enough, they did. So thank you for the intel there. Yeah. Well, look. UCF defends, and that's why UConn scored fifty-two points. Fifty-two points. I mean, look at you look at Stanford, ninety-one points. Maryland, eighty-nine points. So that's that Stanford Maryland game is going to be really fun. But uh, South Carolina, 
49 to 33 against Miami's. But I have to say, they've only allowed, I think it's 51 points to be scored in the first two games, which is an NCAA tournament record for the first two games. So South Carolina is not scoring, but no one's scoring against them. Exactly. So yes. that's okay for now. I think North, Car- North Carolina is going to uh, pose a little bit of a different threat. I think they're playing really well. Um, but yeah, Tennessee's lucky they won that game. I think that, you know, Belmont probably should have won it. Uh, but they, you know, Tennessee's banged up and, you know, they're, they That's right. be kind of a little bit erratic. But, uh, what was kind of your biggest takeaway from the, on the women's side? And then we'll move over to the men's. Yeah, I was surprised with the Kentucky loss. I had them at least getting to the Sweet 16 and thinking that they were going to carry some of that momentum from the SEC tournament. But this just shows you once again that, you can't judge things in the NCAA tournament based on how teams finish their conference tournament. And we saw it on the men's side as well. Virginia Tech makes that big run on the men's side, and they get knocked out in the first round. You know, And I, I get it. They're a lower seed. But still, even looking at Iowa, they make their big run in the men's side and win the conference tournament, get knocked out in the first round. They get upset. And then, obviously, the the Baylor one uh, was very disappointing, uh, just in terms of I wanted to be able to see Louisville and Baylor yeah. match up against yeah. each other. And now I think you know Louisville has a much easier pathway uh, to get to the Final Four. And then in that Greensboro bracket, I was so disappointed, Steffi, because I wanted to see Iowa State and Iowa yeah. match up just because, you know, the two schools, you know, from that state and that they would have an opportunity of one of them get to the elite eight. Uh, so that was a little bit of a surprise to me. And I was disappointed that LSU uh, in their game against Ohio state, just, just couldn't get anything going. And I guess it's just, they don't have enough depth there. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see how Kim Mulkey is going to next year when that team, what it's going to look like uh, in terms of, is she going to be able to replace some of those players? Well, she's not going to replace Kayla Pointer. I mean, Kayla Pointer is a phenomenal player. But, you know, look, LSU going into the tournament, they they played bad at the SEC tournament. And you could say, well, Alexis Morris wasn't playing. Okay, but Jackson State, look, I called the SWAC final. I saw Jackson State in person. They're the real deal. They've got three Power 5 kids and a, and a conference wow. player of the year. And in the last year, before that, they had a conference player of the year that wasn't the, this year's current. So they had five studs. I saw that score Damn. and I was like, I'm not, I wasn't surprised. Okay. But LSU came, rallied back. I think Kim, watching Kim is like doing cardio because it's like your heart rate's pumping for her because she's, she's either in a squat, she's standing up, she's screaming, she's taking off her jacket or she's crying <laughs> or she's on the verge of crying. She's nearly hitting the officials. Um, I think everyone is just always locked in on watching her, you know, that it's it's disappointing that she won't be, you know. I mean, it wasn't exactly. her team. It wasn't her team. That's that's very fair. But they got, they over, I mean, they far exceeded expectations for what that team could have done. Um, they had a great run throughout the year. But, you know, they got Flojene, Flojene, I think her name is. Uh, one of the McDonald's All American coming in, she's a rap, like a successful rapper. Also happens wow. to be one of the best players in the country. Okay, so she That's does diverse. songs with Mike Will. I mean, she's out of Atlanta. I mean, she is a legit. She's got like two million followers. She's a rapper. Think about her and Mulkey. What that's going to look like. 
You know what I mean? Yes, there, we're going to see Kim doing some rapping. Uh, there's no doubt, right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think Texas is is kind of scary. Oh think, yeah, that's I'm, and that was a bad pick for me to have LSU over Texas. Now that I've watched Texas again, like okay, yeah, Coach Schaefer, he's just he's got a talented squad, and he's obviously a hell of a coach. Yeah, uh, and so he could definitely give Stanford a run for their money. I still think that all four number ones are going to make it to the final four. Yeah. I, after watching UConn, I, I, I think, you know, they have potential to get to the, to the final four, but I'm just, I'm not sure. NC state just looks better. They look better. Yes. Um, Stanford, you know, the Stanford, Texas potential, they got to get through Maryland, but I don't think Maryland. Goes, oh, I know. You yeah. know, the way that Stanford does. Let me tell you something. There's a player out there, Lexi Hall. I've never seen anyone play harder than her, Rich. I don't know if you got to see any of Stanford, but moving forward, I mean, it's easy. It's easier to watch them. There's just so many games. I mean, on the women's side and the men's side, and then the teams. I'm, you know, I'm, it's it's hard to get everything. out. the guy that was working next to me, he had three phones of games for himself, <laughs> but also for me while the while the game I'm doing is is being played. Um, so he's celebrating while we're watching. You know, while we're doing our game. You know, it's Lexi Hull. She dropped 36 in our game against Kansas. And she's like one of the most underrated players in the country. And they're they're from, her and her sister are on the team. They're from Spokane. So they're going to Spokane. So I think, you know, that's a nice storyline out of that that uh, region. And we kind of touched on Louisville maybe having an easier path to getting to the Final Four. And then Greensboro, I, you know, I, I still think that our first game, South Carolina, North Carolina, is going to be good. I think it's going to be good. I think so too. Yeah, I, I still think South Carolina will pull away fairly easily down the yeah. stretch, though. I think they got to start scoring, Rich. I think they got to figure out offensively, you know, what's going on. Yeah. What do you think is the issue right now? Well, they don't particularly shoot well. I mean, there would be games they'd shoot thirty percent and win by twenty, and Don's like, you know, we, you know, we kind of win in a variety of ways, but I think later down the stretch, if you need a bucket. And Aaliyah Boston, you know, she's she struggled a little bit in that Miami game, but what guards consistently? And I think Miami just kind of sat in the paint and made them try and shoot, and they just they struggled. So you face a team like that that defensively does that to you, but they can score. That's when you get into a, a that's when you get into trouble. And I think UNC can score. So I that, yeah, it was there was some great upsets. FGCU, uh, my my first school. Uh, beating yes. Virginia Tech I picked was, that like, upset. was a hell of a game. Yeah. And Princeton nearly beating Indiana uh, was another good game. I mean, there was there was some good games and some blowouts. Um, but let's get to the men's bracket, okay? Because I might as well just put mine in the shredder. Actually, I think, oh, I, had, of course. I, had, I, think I had 9 of 16 right in the Sweet 16. That's exactly what I've got. I had 22 of 32 in the first round, and then 9 of 16 there for the Sweet 16. But the biggest disappointment, though, is still I have Kentucky winning the whole damn thing. And that's obviously a disaster when they get knocked out in the first round. And now looking at, I mean, I I think maybe I have gone too much chalk. I've got Gonzaga, Arizona, and Kansas, and Arizona – getting to the national championship game and I was going to have Kentucky beating them. So I'm worried about that. Arizona, 
all these teams, they seem to be struggling to a certain degree. Gonzaga struggled. I mean, Arizona obviously has to go to overtime against TCU, and you can argue, was that a foul right there at the end of regulation there at half court? And, you know, then Kansas might be the only one that's got somewhat of a relative easy path, but they struggled down the stretch against Creighton and had to barely close that out. So it's still completely up in the air. But if you watch watching that Arizona TCU, would you call a foul right there at the end of regulation? No. Yeah, I didn't think so either. I I thought that it was a little bit more of a flop than anything that, yeah, I mean, there was obviously a little bit of contact, but I thought it was a good defensive play. And I, I felt that he just lost control of the ball and was trying to emphasize that, you know, there was a little bit more contact than there actually was. So I was happy that there was no call because there was a lot of other calls throughout this tournament so far that have been bad calls. Brady Manick getting thrown out uh, for a flagrant two. That was absolutely absurd. I'm okay you upgrade it to a flagrant one. I get that. But to upgrade it to a flagrant two and eject him out of there, I mean, that's ridiculous. And then I felt against, uh, I, I felt in the Illinois game, where they call a technical foul on R.J. Melendez as he's on a breakaway and dunks, and he gets called for a technical for hanging on the rim. But it was absolutely absurd. There's no way that is a technical. He's trying to protect himself, and we see they let the guys do that all the time. He wasn't doing any type of pull-up. He wasn't trying to showboat or anything of that nature. It was just a normal routine dunk and for them to call that technical foul that changed the whole landscape of the rest of that game. And I think it was a pivotal point where Illinois is not able to close that game out based on that call. And that was just some of the frustrations that you'd see throughout the tournament, just inconsistent with the calls. That's the problem right now. And also, I guess my perspective, why the hell do we even have a technical foul for hanging on the rim? I mean, is it that big of a deal? I mean, <laughs> honestly, like if I'm watching or if I like I'm commentating or something like if a player hung on the rim and then someone is underneath them and you can see where that would be <laughs> if someone is hanging on the rim and he puts his <laughs> stuff yeah. in another guy's face. Yes. Yeah, okay. Let's call the obvious. <laughs> Don't fucking do that. Um, that's a tech. Like what I saw? No. And I thought, you know, I had Chattanooga winning that game. Um, so that was kind of frustrating. Um, you know, they hung so tough with Illinois. I mean, that game was good, Rich. I know. I had Chattanooga going to the Sweet 16, and they had that game. They should have beaten Illinois, and it wouldn't even been a an issue with, you know, a hanging on the rim uh, for Illinois. Uh, and I was disappointed that Chattanooga did not perform down the stretch, couldn't hit the free throws uh, down the stretch. That was the big problem. Yeah. Well, I know one team you didn't have in your Sweet 16, that's Michigan. Uh, Hell no. Nope. Not even close. (laughs) Because I had Colorado State winning that game. And if there is a surprise, that's definitely one of them. I didn't even have Michigan that they would make the tournament based on when Jawan Howard got suspended. I thought that was it, that they wouldn't be able to respond to those last five games. But damn, 
they they rallied the troops, so to speak, and played well and got in. And now look at this. And I, I did feel that it was pretty fitting for Jawan Howard to be there consoling Kennedy uh, Chandler from uh, Tennessee there at the at the you know end of that game that tough loss for Tennessee and especially when there's been so much talked about obviously what he did in the handshake line and then all of the against Wisconsin and then all of the chatter the narrative hey should we take away handshake lines well guess what you take watch away- that reaction between player and coach you don't get that if you take it away thank you that's my point you don't get that and that would be a travesty if you don't get that type of interaction between those two opposing coach and opposing player. Yeah, such a good moment. Um, I'm, it, Michigan, you know, there was big expectations for them this year. Um, I know. So they're in the Sweet 16, probably where they should have been without some of their conference woes. Um, and, and I think, you know, Notre Dame, uh, the run that they've been on, those are kind of t- obviously same. There's going to be one every year. Uh, uh, a team that is the Cinderella, St. Peter's, taken down Kentucky, right? But Yeah, and the other surprise is Miami. I th- I think it really is. What Jim Laranega has been able to do, I mean, he just consistently overperforms based on what you think their team is going to be. And I got to see them firsthand. And it was funny where I was sitting, uh, Chris Caputo, the associate head coach, he was sitting beside me on that first day. So he was scouting the Auburn-Jacksonville State game. And so now I take a lot of credit uh, for them beating Auburn because I was helping him do the scouting. <laughs> so just know that. <laughs> but it, when you have guard play, we've talked about it, Steffi. When you have veteran guards in the NCAA tournament, and these guys are veteran guards. When you're talking about six-year type of guys with Charlie Moore and Cameron McGusty, and then you throw in Isaiah Wong as well, and they were aggressive against Auburn. They weren't backing down, and they went hard at them and almost punched Auburn in the nose. And I don't think Auburn could respond. It was like, wait wait a second, what, what just happened? And Miami was not backing down, and I loved seeing that. That was, that was so disappointing. It was actually, I know, because I had Auburn going to the Elite Eight. I had Auburn in my Final Four. I just thought, you know, that the way that they played non-conference into what middle to late conference, how in the hell with all that talent, and even like, even with Kentucky, I mean, Tennessee, you could, you know, was there so much of distraction or blah, blah, you know, okay, they lost, disappointing. Auburn and Kentucky? I know. Well, it got to a point where neither of those two teams could shoot from beyond the arc, Auburn or Kentucky, and that was the problem. And obviously, when you have your star players like Jabari Smith, uh, you know, only making three field goals uh, in in a game, that's just not going to cut it. And then the guard play for Kentucky, I mean, for the guard play for Auburn was just so inconsistent. Katie Johnson just all over. I mean, he's he's a little bit of a head case at times. Uh, he's just hard to gather himself. Yeah, anyone who's that high emotion, high highs, low lows, like it, that's tough. And you can get in uh, players' heads. Uh, there's some vulnerabilities, and I think we saw that. But as we continue our storylines, Rich, something that makes kind of makes me happy was Notre Dame on the women's side advancing to the Sweet 16. Mama Bear, Neil Ivy, son, Jaden Ivy. They're both in the Sweet 16. Um, 
what a duo between those two. I mean, you know, Neil Ivy was a superstar at Notre Dame, and her son is a flat-out rock star at Purdue. That is a that is such a fun story to watch between mom and son. And you know, Purdue. What what have you thought about Purdue so far? Well, again, now that you're sitting there in that East region, no Kentucky there. I think Purdue has a relatively easier path. Now, again, I think Kansas has the easiest, although, again, watch out. I mean, Miami can uh, it can do some things. Now, I, I know Miami still has to play Iowa State, and I, I think Miami it can win that game. But Purdue now, going up against St. Peter's, you would think that it's a quote-unquote automatic that they'll make it to the Elite Eight. But anything can happen. I just don't think that St. Peter's can replicate the magic again. And that's just hard to do, especially now that you've had time to almost digest things, think about it, and you know prepare. It's one thing when you're in that situation of playing two games in three days, and you don't even have time to really think about things. You're just, you're just worried about getting out there and playing again. And now do you, do you lose some of that momentum uh, that you've got time to think about it. And now you are a national story in terms of St. Peter's and a lot of interview requests, a lot of media all up in their grill, you know, asking them questions. And a lot of people probably coming out of the woodworks, you know, wanting to get in front of them. Now it's a little bit different that uh, you've somewhat got a little bit of a target on you. So I think it bodes well for Purdue. And when you have the size that Purdue has with Travion Williams, Zach Eady, and then you throw in Jaden Ivey. How do they get seven footers like every year? Like, what is the pitch? Like, VSM, <laughs> come to Purdue. Like, I, I, it's just like a lock for them. But I, I, I think it, it. you're looking at a Purdue-UCLA um, out of the East. Uh, I, I like UCLA. The potential of, you know, the Zags and Duke out of the West, Arizona, Nova. Like some some blue blood, you know, Kansas, we don't know who, if, if they, you know, beat Providence. Will we see Miami or Iowa State? Either one is a, is a terrific story. I know I've got Iowa State um, in the Greensboro region on the women's side. I'm excited to see what they've got, you know, both teams in the tournament. Hey, and just remember, on the mid-side for Iowa State, they won two games last year. That's two games last year, and they're one win away from the Elite Eight one year after that. That's incredible. You got to give it up to our guy Terrence, who came on like episode three, and he—I yes. remember him specifically talking about Iowa State. Sure just did. A team to watch. He was right. They're he in. Was. They're in the Sweet Sixteen. Um, they could very well get to the Elite Eight. How you know how special of a story that would be? Um, what's your most compelling matchup of the Sweet Sixteen? You know, I think uh, it's actually Duke and Texas Tech. Uh, because I want to see how Duke responds after almost losing to Michigan State. And I, I thought for a moment, and it was weird how it hit me, when Michigan State's up late in that game, and it hit me that I might be watching Coach K's final collegiate game, because they might lose. Michigan State was hanging with them. And actually, again, leading right there over the last few minutes of the game. And then Duke just responded. And it was almost like, did Duke grow up? 
in terms of those younger guys, the Paulo Bancaro, the Trevor Keels, and the A.J. Griffin, although he got hurt, but then the Jeremy Roach, those guys, did they somewhat grow up where we saw in that game, not only in the ACC tournament championship game, but also in that game against North Carolina and Cameron, where did the pressure get too much? Was it too big? The, the national stage, was it too big for them? And it seemed like that game against Michigan State where they were on the verge of they were going to be the team that could not get to the Sweet 16 in Coach K's last tournament. That would have been a disaster in my eyes. And I think uh, a lot of other people's eyes would have said what a very disappointing season from that perspective. But they were able to rally uh, and just went on a huge run right there at the end of the game and ended up winning by nine points. And so now how good they are offensively, and we know how good Texas Tech is defensively. And Texas Tech is going to be physical as hell, Steffi. And I want to see how Duke responds to that physicality. And is it going to be better offense that wins or better defense that wins? And that's going to be a telling sign here in that Sweet 16 matchup. I'm really torn on my, look, every matchup is compelling, right? I think Zags, Arkansas, must bus. That's tempting for me. Um, but Arizona and Houston, Kelvin Sampson, you know, they, they've handled business the first two rounds. That's interesting to me. That matchup is very similar to the Texas Tech-Duke matchup because, again, offense versus defense. But Houston can also score. And remember, they lost their two top players early in the season. And obviously, the, the big one with Marcus Sasser uh, losing him at the very beginning of the season. So it's amazing what Kelvin Sampson's been able to do. You know, he always has his teams, regardless of where he is, like in, a, in the hunt. Um, but I, even Villanova, Michigan, the way that Michigan's playing, do they just keep going? You know, I know. Howard and, you know, the team has, re, re, you know, rallied around him since the whole they have. De- debacle. And then, you know, Villanova, do they really have enough? Um, I don't know. Um, are you sold on Nova? No, I'm not. And I've said it from the beginning. I'm not sold on Nova. And that's why I had Tennessee beating Villanova. But for whatever reason, they just continue to grind and keep getting there. I mean, what Jay Wright does. And then obviously you've got, again, a veteran guy, Colin Gillespie, that is the steady Eddie type of guy. So you can't rule out Villanova, although I still have, I'm just not buying into him. But at some point, damn, I guess I have to. <laughs> if that's what makes it intriguing is the, the way that Michigan has come into this Sweet 16. Or, you know, and uh, can he make a name for himself? Can Michigan get to the lead eight? There's a lot of great matchups. It's going to be, um, we'll see. I'm not making any predictions. I'm not, I'm not putting that energy out there because. Exactly. I, I've thought about even asking Matt when we had him on earlier. All right. So who's your pick now uh, based on we've whittled down to 16 teams here. And then I was thinking, well, if I ask him, that means then I have to make a prediction. And damn, I can't (laughs) make a prediction because I don't know if I have the mental fortitude because, again, I have this uh, paralysis by analysis that happens where I overanalyze this. And it's almost like a flip of a coin because you can't predict it. No matter how well you think you know the game, it's just too unpredictable. And that's why I still 
blown away how people will bet on these games because it is just way too unpredictable for me to ever lay any money down. Unless you know the team's styles and you can bet the spread. Um, blackjack all day, sports gambling, I don't know anything about. Don't come here on this podcast to get gambling advice. No, definitely do not. You do not want to have gambling advice from Steffi or me. I can tell you, you will be losing some money. All right, that is it for episode 16 as we are in the midst of March Madness. Both men's and women's are down to 16 teams, the Sweet 16, and we will be back again next week as we look at now what it's going to look like for the Final Four. But as always, if you haven't, please follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and let us know your thoughts by rating and reviewing. And as always... We appreciate you investing your time to listen. This is Automatic.